actually in chapter 4 at the very end. But if you're in chapter 5, you're close enough. As you know by now, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of three sermons delivered by Moses in the, past, in the last month of his life, just prior to him going to heaven and the children of Israel going into the promised land, uh, the land of their destiny. And last week, we left off in verse 40 of chapter 4 at the conclusion of Moses' first sermon. So the first of three was concluded there in verse 40. And if you had been part of that congregation, if you were there that Sabbath or that day when Moses delivered that sermon, and you happened on your way into that meeting to grab a bulletin, and in the bulletin of that meeting, there was a, a page where you could take notes, you know, like some bulletins have. And right there on the top, it, it says theme or topic, and there's a blank line. You, you would take your, uh, your pen in that day, and you would have written in there as the theme of Moses' first sermon. The theme was to be diligent, to hear, to keep, and to do the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. That's the theme of Moses' first sermon that he gave in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. The points that you would have wrote underneath the theme, just two points in that long sermon. One is, very simply, that disobedience yields failure. And the second point would be, obedience yields success. A very simple sermon that Moses gave in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. Obey the word of God. If you disobey, you're not going to do well. And if you obey, you're going to do well. Very simple. Now, as he begins the second sermon in the scripture that we begin to look at tonight, the theme of the second sermon, if you had a bulletin and you were going to write in there, the theme of the second sermon is, be careful to hear, to keep, and to do the Word of God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) The theme of the second sermon, the topic of it, is exactly the same as the topic from the first sermon that he gave in the first four chapters. The topic, the theme is the same, but the substance is different. The substance of the second sermon is the specifics of what God's word is or what God's commands are. In the first one, he was just saying, obey, obey, obey. In this one, he's now going to tell us what we're to obey, what it is that we're to do, as he begins to now expound upon the law of God, upon the commands, the statutes, and the judgments that he is encouraging us to be doers of. And so we begin the second sermon. Now, In verses 41 to 43 there, it's a very short parenthetical about how Moses set apart three cities of refuge, one for each of the three tribes that was going to pitch camp on that side of the Jordan, one for Reuben, one for Gad, and one for the half-tribe of Manasseh. We're going to get into the cities of refuge more in depth in chapter 19. So you can read that make a mental note of it, that it's there in those verses. And then as we get into verse 44 now of chapter 4, what we have is the introduction to the second sermon. 
And so if you're there with me, verse 44 of chapter 4, Moses speaks, we read, it says, And this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which Moses spake unto the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt. On this side Jordan, in the valley over against Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel smote after they were come forth out of Egypt. And they possessed his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites, which were on this side, Jordan, toward the sun rising, from Eror, which is by the bank of the river Arnon, even unto Mount Sion, which is Hermon, and all the plain on this side of Jordan eastward, even unto the sea of the plain under the springs of Pisgah. Now, in many ways, the first sermon that Moses has just concluded sets the stage for the second sermon that he is now beginning. And that's exactly what he does in these verses now leading up into chapter 5. And I picture in my mind Moses on an empty stage. I'm sure he wasn't. They were outside. You know, they didn't have a facility. But I picture it so that Moses was on an empty stage and before him all of the congregation of Israel was gathered giving ear to his words. And what Moses essentially does in these verses is is that in their presence, in their eyesight, he, he walks to the side of the stage and he goes just beyond the side of the curtain and he begins to drag set props onto the stage in their you know, eyesight so that they can see. And what he does is he drags five set props, things that he wants them to see, the framework for all that he's about to say from what he already said. And so he goes off the stage and the first thing that he grabs a hold of and then brings out for them to see that he wants them to be constantly aware of while they're listening to the next sermon is the fact that, number one, they were brought forth out of Egypt. He he mentions that twice here in these verses, in verse 45 and then again in verse 46, that they have been brought forth out of Egypt. And he wants them, in light of the fact that they are being called to obey God, to always be mindful, to always be in remembrance of the fact that they had been redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt. When it comes to this topic of obedience, of of taking God's word and applying it to our lives and appropriating it in our actions and what we do, if we don't remember where we came from, if we don't remember what God saved us out of, then obedience to God's word will always become a religious, mechanical thing that we do that has no purpose and has no love. And so it's important, it's vital for us to always remember what it is that God saved us out of. He brought us out of bondage. He brought us out of slavery to sin. He brought us out of being alienated and separated from God. He brought us out of a baseless existence. He brought us out of hopelessness. 
And he's brought us into life in his name. And he's revealed himself to us. And that's to always be in the front of our minds as we're considering our walk with him and how it is that we're going to prepare our way. It's he saved our lives. And so Moses drags this out for them to see that he has rescued you from Egypt. The second thing is he goes off stage the second time and he pulls the second set prop out in front of them. It's Beth Peor. Beth Peor, he mentions that in verse 46. On this side of Jordan in the valley over against Beth Peor. If you were here last week, you remember what Beth Peor was. It was the place where Balaam, that false prophet, taught Balak, the king of Moab, to send in the Moabite women to seduce sexually the men of Israel. And the men of Israel almost collapsed. The immorality and the corruption that came into their congregation because of what happened at Beth Peor almost wiped them out. And so Moses wants them, as he's about to talk about this, to be mindful always of the potential that sin has to corrupt a life or a congregation or a nation. And so he wants them to see that, to remember what happens when you disobey, when you give yourself to license. And so he drags out Beth Peor. The third thing is he drags in here in preparation for his next sermon is the fact that they are dwelling in the land of Og and in the land of, of, of Sihon. That they had already begun to conquer territory and receive the blessing that God had for their lives. He wanted them to be mindful of the fact that God had already begun his work within their lives. That he was already blessing them. That he was already dispossessing giants and giving them their land, blessing them in their inheritance. And that's something that when it comes to this thing of obeying God's word, of keeping his his ways before us, is to always remember the things that God has already done for us. It's of paramount importance to, to, to remember and mark the things that God has done within our lives. A life of faith, a life walking with the Lord, is a good life, but it's not an easy life. And we go through things in this life that are difficult, trials. And it's so important that we're mindful of the things that God has already done. And here's why. Because if God has begun to bless our lives, if God is already at work within our lives, the Bible says that he's going to complete the work that he began. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so, the things that he has already done for us, the giants that he's already slain for us, those things are forever an encouragement and a testimony to the fact that he is with us. And Moses here wants them to be mindful of that. Look, God has already begun doing for you what he wants to do for you. The fourth piece of furniture that Moses pulls out from the side there is the fact that they are on the brink of the river. They're on the brink of the river. Across from where they're congregated looms before them the high arching walls of the city of Jericho. It was a monument, a testimony of what they were about to receive. God was about to bless them with the promise that he had promised to Abraham over 400 years previously. And they were about to enter into the fullness of what God had for them. 
And he wanted them to see that as he's talking to them about being obedient to the Lord. About how critical it is, if we want to enjoy what God has for us, that we must be obedient to what he says to us. And he wants them to realize, look what's before you. Now listen here for a moment. Because as true as that was for them, and it was true, they were about to enter into blessing beyond what they could ever comprehend. But as true as that was for them, it's so much more true for you and for me. Here's why. Because for them, the promised land, it was was glorious. I'm not trying to to, to belittle it. But but they took the land, and, and then they were in. And that was it. It was before them. They could see Jericho, but that was Jericho, and and then they had it. But for you and for me, where we are is that we stand continually on the brink of, of Jordan. Here's why. Because there's always infinitely more for you and I to experience and enjoy of God's goodness. No matter where you are in your Christian life or your walk with the Lord, there is infinitely more that he wants to bless you with that he can bless you with, and that he will bless you with. And so for you and I, it's important that we're mindful of the fact that as long as we walk with God, the only way there is for us to go is up. Is that he's going to continually lift us up. He's going to continually reveal himself to us. He's going to continually bring us into the land and deepen us and broaden us and fill us with his love and make us a reflection of himself. And so there's always more. And so be mindful of that, Moses is saying. And then the fifth thing that he brings before them, that he drags out onto the stage, is where they are. And that is that they're under the springs of Pisgah. He says that there at the end of verse 49. That they're under the springs of Pisgah. It's interesting, the word Pisgah. And the names are always significant in the Old Testament and in the New. But the word Pisgah means boundaries. And he says, you are under the springs of Pisgah, or the springs of boundaries. God wants to do incredible things in our lives. That's what he tells us in his word. But when we're walking in disobedience to God, or we're walking out of harmony with God's will and God's purpose for our lives, he cannot do the things that he is wanting to do within our lives. That's why the message of Jude, the New Testament book of Jude, is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait, does that mean to keep myself so holy and so righteous and so good that God can't help but love me? No. <laughs> that, that would, well, first of all, that's impossible. And second of all, that would contradict all other scripture. So, so what does that mean, to keep yourself in the love of God? Here's what it means. It means to keep your life within the boundaries of God's word so that... He can do for your life the things that he is wanting to do for your life. Stay under the spout where the glory comes out. Stay under the springs of Pisgah. Stay within the boundaries that God has set before you so that you can enjoy all that God wants to do within your life. And so Moses sets the stage for them in this way. He says, you've been redeemed, brought out of Egypt. You've seen what happened at Beth Peor, the disobedience. You're on the land of Og and Bashan. You've begun to possess. You know, and, and then he, he pulls out uh, you, you know, the, the other things and, and Pisgah, the springs that they're under. And he says, now, in light of that, verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, And Moses called all Israel. And he said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes, 
and judgments which I speak in your ears this day that you may learn them and keep them and do them. Now, that's becoming pretty constant. It seems like every other chapter Moses uses this phrase, isn't it? And he presents right off the bat the theme of his sermon. Listen, be careful to hear, to learn, to keep, and to do the things that God says to you. And then he's about to get into now the Ten Commandments. And in this chapter, as Moses begins this sermon, the foundation of all of God's law is the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai there in Exodus chapter 20. And so if you're a note taker or a Bible marker, I'll quickly give you the breakdown of the chapter. The first five verses is just kind of a a little quibby intro as Moses sets to, to, to quote the law. And then verses 6 all the way through verse 21 is the Ten Commandments as he lays them out for us. And then verses 22 all the way through 27 is the response that the people give to God from the law. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 28 through 33, is the response that God then gives to the response that the people gave. So very simple outline, uh, you, you know, to just to commit to your memory or, or to follow along. And so Moses just sets them up now in verse 2. It says this. He says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. Is there a reoccurring word somewhere in that verse? I think that Moses wants to see or wants to point out to the people that he's talking to that the word of God is relevant now. It's often a temptation for us, isn't it, to think that, well, this was written so long ago. And and this is antiquated. It's it's out of style. It's out of date. and, And it was written then. So, you know, it doesn't really apply today. But Moses says, no, 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 no. This wasn't for them. This is for us. And the same thing is true for you and I that are here. The Word of God, the things that God has to say are not antiquated or out of date, but they are written for us. They're intended to speak to us and to help us in this time now for us. Get it? Us. It's relevant now. Then he says in verse 4, he says, The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Not only is the Word of God relevant, but the Word of God is personal. How often have you sat in a message and you thought, wow, this message is for Uncle Joe. Or, I am so glad my husband came with me today. He's hearing this message. This message is for him. Wrong. (laughs) The Word of God is for you. Anytime that the Word of God is spoken, God wants to speak to you. It isn't for someone else. It isn't for Uncle Joe or for your spouse or for, you know, your kids or anyone else. But God wants to speak to you. And so the word of God is personal. And therefore, we should always take it personally. And we should always approach it personally when we come to Bible study or when we study on our own. Is that God, you don't want to speak to someone else through what what we're doing here. You want to speak to me. And the power of God is such is that even in a crowd like this, God can speak to each one of us as though we are the only ones here, individually, personally. So the Word of God is relevant. The Word of God is personal. And then in verse 5, he says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the Word of the Lord, 
For you were afraid by reason of the fire, and you went not up into the mount. Now, why is it that they wouldn't want to go up into the mount? Here's why. Because not only is the word of God relevant and personal, but the word of God is also serious. The Bible says that the word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there anything hid from before his eyes, for all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees right through us, and his word penetrates to the deepest part of us. And so the word of God is serious. You could sum up Moses' intro or, you know, setup for this thing as saying three things. You could say that the word of God is relevant, the word of God is personal, so take it personally, and the word of God is serious, take it seriously. It's literal, it's powerful, and it's for us. And so he says this, and here's what God said, verse 6, here's the law. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God gave is that you are not to have any other God besides Jehovah God, the Lord God, the true and the living God. There's to be no lowercase g's, lowercase gods, in the lives of his people. You say, well, what is a lowercase god? What is a false god that he's talking about in here? Well, you could look at that in one of three ways. A god or a false god is, is first of all, anything that someone leans upon. Anything that we lean upon outside of him or outside of our, ourselves, and I, I don't mean selves as though we should depend upon ourselves, but is anything outward that we lean upon or trust in or call upon other than him. Some people worship the little God of money. That's the answer for all their troubles. When they run into difficulty or when they run into need, they call out and they say, Dollar, help me! And that's the thing that they're trusting in. It's the thing that they're hoping in. They're leaning on it. They're trusting in it. For some people, it could be a rich parent. That could be your God, who you're depending on, who you're trusting in to meet your needs. For some, it could be a doctor or a drug or, 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 or it could be a myriad of other things. It could be a dependence, a chemical substance. Anything that you would lean upon or call upon to help you in your time of need, you're leaning on it. It's a lowercase g. It's a false god. It's not just the things that we lean upon, but it's also the things that we are defined by. What are you defined by? If someone were to describe you, or if you were going to describe yourself to someone, how would they describe you? There's a principle in the scripture, it's, 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 it's illustrated perfectly in Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, verse 8, as the psalmist is talking about those that worship idols, carved images, he says these words, he says, they that make them are like unto them. They that make them are like unto them. In other words, what he's saying is that what you worship is what you become. What you bow down to is what you are ultimately going to begin to reflect the image of. And so, if you are one who worships fitness then that's going to begin to reflect itself in who you are, what, what's reflected in your life. 
If you're someone who worships money, that's going to begin to reflect in your personality, in your mannerisms, in the way that you dress, in the way that you are. If you're a person that worships pleasure, your, life, your, your, your appearance even is going to begin to bear the image of those things. The same thing holds true when we worship the true and the living God. When we serve him, when we honor him, then we begin to be conformed into the image of him. We begin to bear the likeness of him. And, and so it's not just the things that we lean on, it's also the things that we're defined by. But also, it's the things that we give affection to. The things that we worship. He, he links it together here in the next commandment, in verse 8. He says, You shall not make thee any graven image, or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. Now, we don't in this society have idols in the same way that they did in theirs. They would literally have carved images, things that were you know, molded out of a tree trunk or carved out of stone, and they would erect it in their house and build a shrine and worship it. We don't do that necessarily, but we do worship images. We certainly are moved and governed as a society by the things that we see. And we watch as those things reflect in who we become and who we are. And so it's something that we need to watch out for even in our day. It's interesting, you'll notice there, he says that you shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. To bow down to something means that you are under its power that you are yielding yourself to its control over your life. You're giving it reverence. You're giving it authority over you. And what God is saying is that there's to be nothing in your life that has authority over you besides me. And here's why. It's because whoever you bow down to is who you will ultimately serve. Your energy, your effort, your time, your resources will be given to the thing that you bow down to. And so God says, it's to be me only. And then he qualifies it. He says, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. Now we talked about that last week, about what it means that God is a, a jealous God. He doesn't want to share us with anyone. He wants and he deserves all of our affection. And he's not going to divide it, even as we wouldn't let our spouse share their love with other people. You know, it, it belongs to us. You know, we've made a covenant and God doesn't do it. Now, there was something I wanted to say and I, and I didn't, and I'll, so I'll say it now. And that is this, is that just because I don't share Georgia with other men, I don't let her bring in other guys, you know, to, to, to enjoy our home and whatnot. You know, I don't do that and, and neither would you. You know, you wouldn't do that. But what that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that every minute of every day, Georgia's standing there right next to me going, what are you going to say now? What are you, what are you going to do now? What are you? She, she doesn't, sometimes I wish she would. But she doesn't do that. And, and so, you know, I, I don't think that's the idea, is that every minute of every day, oh, if, if my nose isn't in the book, or if I'm not down on my knees with my hands lifted in prayer, then God is, I'm, I'm, he's competing or something. No, no, that's not the idea. Georgia does things. She crochets. She likes to cook. She, she has interests and in things. And we rejoice together in those things. You know. But her love, her devotion is to me. And so God says that that's the same way that you're to be with me. Is that there's to be nothing else in your life that takes precedence or priority 
over me. And if your affection is being divided, then you're out of balance. That's what he's saying to them. And then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now there's a doctrine that has spun off of this verse called the doctrine of the generational curse. That if my great-grandmother was a witch, you know, and she practiced witchcraft and sorcery and all of that, then the sin of my ancestor is going to be visited upon me, and somehow I am predestined to be given into that sinful tendency or that sinful iniquity, that bond of iniquity, and that I have no choice over the matter. But that's a generational curse that's been placed upon me according to what God has said in his word. That's a false doctrine. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, God speaks to his people. Old Testament. This isn't New Testament. This is Old Testament. And God says this to the people. He says, what mean ye by using this proverb? Our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge. Our teeth are falling out and rotting and we have cavities because of what our parents did. They ate sour grapes. They didn't take care of their lives. They didn't keep themselves in check. And so therefore, we're paying for it. We're suffering. And God's response to that proverb was this. I don't ever want to hear that again. The soul that sins shall die. If a righteous man does righteously, he will be regarded as righteous. If a wicked man does wickedly, he will be regarded as wicked. If a wicked man has a righteous son, his son is righteous. If a righteous son has a, then a wicked son, he will be regarded wicked. And God says everyone will bear their own burden. Now, you say, well, then what does it mean when it says visiting the iniquity upon the children to the third and fourth generation? It is true that we do inherit sinful tendencies. That's true. I see it in my own life. I, I know the history of my family on both my mother and my father's side. And I can recognize from the stories I hear and the things in my own life that, yes, there are tendencies in me to go in erroneous ways in the same way that those that went before me did. But that by no means means that there is power over me of those things and that I can't control it or that Jesus can't give me power and victory over those things. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creation. Old things are washed away. Behold, all things become new. And that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So don't let anybody lay a trip on you that you can't get victory over cigarettes because it's a generational curse. That's the flesh. And you can beat the flesh. That's the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? He goes on. He says in verse 11, and this is the third commandment. He says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? I think, first of all, it means to just use it flippantly. To use the name of God in a way that we would use any other word on any other occasion during any other time. Things like saying, Oh, my God. And, you know, we, we, we throw it out there like it means absolutely nothing. And in one sense, we're watering down the power and the authority of the name. And I think we should be mindful of that. 
The second way is obviously when it's attached to profanity, to blaspheme in the traditional sense. That is to attach the name of God to a curse word in some way and to, to, to bring God's name into the profane realm of words and language. And that's to use his name in vain. It's true. But I think that the way that is probably the most fitting with what God is getting at here, it means to take the name, but to reject the nature. To take his name upon our lives. To call ourselves by his name. To say that we are Christians, little Christ. But then to disregard the nature that he wants to put in us to back up what that name represents. God is very careful to defend his name throughout the pages of Scripture. When he's called El Shaddai, Almighty God, it's because he is sovereignly almighty. There is nothing he can't do. When he calls himself Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, it's because he does provide and his record is seamless. When he calls himself Jehovah, you know, Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, it's because he imputes righteousness to us and he does it faithfully. He always honors his name and who he is. And he upholds his name with great weight. And so shouldn't it be true in the lives of those that take his name that that means something? That it means something that I'm a Christian. It means something that I'm a follower of God. It's not just something that I say, a t-shirt that I wear, or a bumper sticker that I put on my car, or something that I... Flippantly, you, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet my life speaks volumes in the opposite to oppose that thing. And so you're not to take the name of the Lord in vain, to take the name but disregard the nature. Number four, verse 12, he says, Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son, nor your daughter, nor your servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Now, this is one of a few places in this list where the language, the verbiage, is different than what was given in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, the reason that they were to keep the Sabbath was that it was a divine principle. In Exodus, he said, look, for six days the Lord created, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you are to follow the same pattern. Six days of work, one day of rest, a divine uh, pattern, a divine institution. Here, he talks about their servitude in the land of Egypt. And he falls upon their experience being under the bondage that they were under there in the land of Egypt, serving with rigor, serving seven days a week. And so here, he doesn't call upon the divine principle of Sabbath rest, but here he calls upon the humanly practical aspect of Sabbath rest. It's true that we're to follow the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest because it's divine. But it's also incredibly practical. Did you know that? To take one day a week where you just turn the motor off, you know, power down, recharge, decompress, 
you know. All those things. It's so valuable that we take that time. It helps us physically. It helps us emotionally. It helps us with productivity. And it helps us preservationally. It keeps us going to do those things. And he's done it for us. He has given us the Sabbath. What did Jesus say? He said that man wasn't made to be a slave to the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was given as a gift to man to take one day and just rest. Now, this law is also a little bit different than all of the others as it concerns you and me. Here's why. Because in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we are told there that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That he is our rest. Let me read you the verse. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, and it's Sabbath, the same word and same concept, he said, He also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. And he's making the point that when a person is in Christ... When your sins and mine were placed upon the cross with him there and he bled out and died and we were linked to him, we were linked spiritually, supernaturally to an eternal Sabbath. Meaning that for you and me, it isn't that we don't keep a Sabbath. That's not what what it means. What it means is, is that for you and me, seven days are the Sabbath. It isn't one in seven for the Christian. It's seven out of seven. We've ceased from our own works. The picture is fulfilled. Our labor to try to enter into God's favor is complete. We're complete in Christ. And so therefore, he is our rest. If you want to read more, just read Hebrews chapter 4 and understand the principle of what he's saying there. And so that is our rest. For you and for me, every day is the Sabbath. That's what Paul said. He said, hey, to to some they esteem one day above another. But to another, they esteem every day alike. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. We have an eternal Sabbath in Jesus Christ. He is our rest. That doesn't negate the principle of one in seven, of taking a day to rest. It's important. So he gives them the law of the Sabbath. Now, that concludes the first table of the law. The first four commandments were the first tablet. You remember that there were two tables of stone. And the first table was the first four commandments, and they all had to do with man's relationship with God, the vertical. And if you look at these, they all have to do with man's relationship to God. But now the last six, the second table of the stone, these are the laws that have to do with man's relationship with man, the horizontal. So he begins with the foundation of all human relationships there in verse 16, and he says, Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This pertains not just to childhood, but it pertains to every aspect of our human lives. In our childhood, when we're young, at the first early stages of our lives, This applies in terms of submission and obedience. Children are to submit to the rule of their parents and obey the things that their parents say. That's what it means to honor your father and your mother when you're a child. When you're middle-aged, you're past that brink of childhood, 
To honor your father and mother means to give them respect and reverence. You're to leave and cleave. You're no longer under their roof or under their authority. But you're to revere them and respect them. You're not to slander them or talk down on them or in any way belittle them. But you're to treat them with respect and honor. And then, in the third stage of life, when you're an adult and your parents are old, it means to support and sustain them, to give them care, to bring them into your home, and to do for them what they did for you when you were just a baby, to care for them. Jesus mentioned this when he was indicting the Pharisees. He, He said to them, he said, you transgress the law of God through your tradition." The scripture says, honor your father and your mother. He was talking to adults. But you say, Jesus said, it is korban. Meaning, the money. The money that I have, mom and dad, I can't use it to support you. Because it's korban. That means it's dedicated. I have told God that I'm going to use this money for spiritual things. And therefore, I cannot bring you into my house. I'm sorry. And Jesus said, you're transgressing the law of God through your tradition." So honoring your father and mother is not just for infants, not just as you cross that line into early adulthood, but even when you're older, to sustain and take care of your parents. And then Paul said this, and it's right here in the text, is that it's the first commandment that has a promise attached to it. He says, if you do this, life will go well with you, and you will, your days will be prolonged in the land that God gives to you. And so God's going to honor you as you honor him by honoring your parents. Then he goes on in verse 17, and he says, Thou shalt not kill. And what this means is murder. And specifically, it means murder in the first degree. Premeditated, or because of rage, or jealousy, or in some way, killing someone. It does not mean killing that happens in time of war. War is a thing that's sanctioned by God in the scripture, and there are times when it's necessary, and that's not what this means. It's not speaking of hunting. It's not talking about animals. God said to to Adam in the garden, he says, all of this I've provided, these animals, as food for you. And he said to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So it isn't talking about hunting. It's not talking about capital offense or capital crime or capital punishment. The foundation of all human government in early Genesis chapters was capital punishment. That if man sheds blood... By man, his blood will be shed. And so it's not talking about capital punishment, and it's not talking about self-defense. When you are protecting yourself in that regard, and, and there's scriptural precedent. Thou shalt not murder means murder in the first degree. To kill someone unjustly, to play God, step into his seat, and to take life. You don't have the right to do that. Then in verse 18, he says, Neither shalt thou commit adultery. And adultery is, we know, it's infidelity, it's fornication. It's sexual contact with another human being outside of the boundaries of biblical covenantal marriage. That's what adultery is. It means if you're not married yet and you're with someone who is not married, that's adultery, it's fornication. It means if you're not married and you're with someone who is, that's adultery. And it means if you are married and you have any contact intimately with any other person other than your spouse, that is adultery. God is the one that created sex. He made it. It's cool. It's okay. It was his idea. 
But God is all wise, and he knows that it has its proper place. And within the boundaries of marriage, it's beautiful, it's building, it's wonderful. Outside, it makes a mess. It destroys families, it breaks down societies, and it ruins people internally. It messes with the wiring of their soul. And so God in his wisdom, he says, do not commit adultery. Then he goes on, uh, verse 19, he says, neither shalt thou steal. That means to take something that's not yours. Verse 20, neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now, this also is worded in such a way that it's expanded. It it doesn't simply mean, do not lie. It it does mean that. You know, that's obvious in in first, number one, is that is, do not give wrong information. That's number one. But it also means, do not give the right information with the wrong implication. You ever heard someone do that? You, You know, yeah, I cleaned my room, you know, but really, I just shoved everything under the bed and in the closet. You know, I, I, right information, wrong. In fact, in the Bible, there was a, a time when that happened, when Jesus was on trial. It says that they came and they brought false witness against Jesus. Same words it uses here, false witness. They said, this man said, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus did say that. They weren't lying. But yet it says they were bearing false witness. What gives? It was the right information, but it was the wrong implication. They were taking his words out of context, making him say something that he didn't mean by it, and then using it against him. And we're not to do that. We're not to twist things around and be dishonest and shady. And it also means character assassination. It means talking about someone behind their back and painting them in a bad light and slandering their character in the eyes of someone else. You're not to bear false witness against your neighbor. I love the example I've gotten from my wife in this regard. She has a gift. And maybe it's, I don't know if it's a gift. I don't have it naturally. But she has the the supernatural ability to disregard, as though she never heard it, anything that she can't prove is absolute fact. So I could come home and I could say, man, Georgia, you are not going to believe what, the, what this person said or what this person did or, or, or what happened in this situation. And she'll, she'll be, I'll watch her. She'll look at me for a minute and then she'll, you know, she'll, she'll kind of process it and she'll say, well, do you know that? Well, this person said it and then she's done. Huh, whatever. She gets on with her life and she can love that person whom was slandered by me to her. She can love that person as though she never heard that before. I'm not that good at that. Once someone comes to me and says, this person's a real, yeah, they did that. You know, even if I don't know that person, I've never talked to them, I don't know the story, when I see them, in my heart I'm thinking, I'm going to watch out for that guy. And that's why character assassination is wretched. Because you might hate someone unfounded, no reason at all. And so don't, don't do it and don't receive it. Don't listen. If someone comes to you and they want to talk about someone else, here's what you do. You say, uh, can I quote you on that? <laughs> it's amazing how that stops that conversation. Uh, you know. <laughs> Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And then number 10, he says, Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his donkey, 
or anything that is thy neighbor's. And what I call this, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, I call this the kill shot. Because what this law does, this Tenth Commandment, is that it gives infinite strength to all of the other laws. What this law does is that it goes underneath the surface. All of the other laws are things that we do with our hands. But this is something that we do with our heart. We covet. It's, a, it's in our thought process. And so what this does is that it exponentially expands the potential for sin in the life of a person. I picture nine little flower pots. And here's God, and he says, all right, now, here's these little flower pots. I just want you to keep the weeds out of these nine flower pots. Don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, don't have idols, don't have false gods, keep one and say, and I'm going, okay, I can do this. Good, I got these flower pots, I'm just going to keep the weeds out, I'm I'm not going to, and then he says, oh, and one more thing, Uh, come here. And then he opens a door, and there's this 10,000 acre field, and he says, and no weeds in this one either. (laughs) <laughs> and all of a sudden I go, oh, what? You know, because now, 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 once the law goes beyond just what I do with my hands, and now it affects what I do in my mind and in my heart, it makes the thought of all of the other things I'm not supposed to do equally sinful with doing them. The Apostle Paul said that this is the law, the 10th commandment. This is the one that slayed him, that slew him. He was doing pretty good with the first nine. But he said, when he came to the commandment, thou shalt not lust. He said, then the law slew me. I realized, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) I can't keep that one. I can do all the others. It's the one that got the rich young ruler. Remember, he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus said, you read Moses, keep the law. And he says, ha, I've done it. I've kept him. He says, I haven't, you know, I've honored my father and my mother. I haven't stolen. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I'm doing good. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. He was covetous. And it says that he went away sad because he had many possessions. He had much riches and he wasn't willing. It slew him, see. Jesus said, you have read, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, if you anger with your brother without a cause, you have already murdered him in your heart. The root of the act of murder is the thought of anger. If anger is never in the heart, murder will never happen with the hand. It starts inside. He said, you have read where it's written, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you have even looked at a woman and lusted after her, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. The act of adultery starts with the root of lust, coveting. It's in the heart. And so therefore, sin is not something that we just do with our hand. It's something that we do with our heart. And what that does is that it leaves every single one of us in the verdict of guilty, outside of the standard of God's righteousness, with absolutely no ability to keep what he has said, nor to please him through the keeping of his law. Good news. Let's pray and come back next week. The response...
that the people give to Moses. And you can read these verses on your own in verses 22 through 27. Is that the people basically, there's three things that happen in them. Number one is that it causes them to greatly fear God. They hear these words, they comprehend the weight of them, and they fear him. It brings a great fear upon them, upon their lives. The second thing it produces is a vulnerability. They realize that they're naked. They realize that, they're, that they can't do it, that they're not going to measure up. And so they tell Moses, listen, you talk to God, and, and, and then tell us what he says. We don't want to be close to him. And that's the third thing that happens, is that the law produced separation. The law produced separation. They said, we don't want to hear God speak to us. We don't want to be in his presence. You go into his presence, Moses, and we'll just do whatever he tells you. You come back and tell us, and we'll just do it. That's what the law does. It produces fear, vulnerability, and separation. And that's what it did. And God's response to that response in verses 28 through 31 was God said, they have well spoken. In other words, mission accomplished. The law has done exactly what I sent the law to do. They have well said. And then he says, oh, that they had the heart. Oh, that they could do it. What they would experience, what they would have. But then in the final two verses, and I will read these to you in verse 32. It's the summation of the covenant of the law. The terms and conditions, if you will. He says, you shall observe to do, therefore, as the Lord your God hath commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. The terms and conditions of the covenant of the law that God gave to his people Israel is that you must live by this law. Meaning, you do not have permission nor right to violate this law at any point in your existence. That's heavy, isn't it? What was the purpose of the law as we close? Why did God give the law to the people? What was his strategy, his intent, his reason? Number one, it was to reveal the character and the nature of a holy God. If God issues this law, then it stands to reason that it is the law that dictates who he is. If he tells his creation that these are the things that you're to do, then certainly it's a reflection of who he is and what he is. And so it reveals to us the standards of a holy God. This is who he is. The second thing that the law does and that God intended the law to do is that it lays down for us, and listen to me here, it lays down for you and for me the standard whereby we must live if we are to please God. This is the standard. If you think that you can please God through your religious work, your religious effort, or the strength of your obedience, then this is what you must do. 24-7, 365, from the moment you're born until the moment you die. And if you do that, then you will be accepted and counted worthy to enter into glory before God. Ready, team? Not very inspiring, is it? And so the third thing, then, that the law was intended to do, listen carefully, it's the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. If you've fallen asleep, wake up for this. The third thing that the law does in your life and in mine is that it reveals that we have fallen short of the glory of God. It reveals that it is impossible for human flesh 
to meet up with the standard that God requires in order for us to be saved. We cannot do it. Paul says that this was the reason. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, listen, by the deeds of the law, by keeping the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the purpose of the law, number three, the third reason, the purpose of the law was to reveal in you and in me that we are sinful. It can't do anything else after that. It can't change the fact that we're sinful. You can't take a sinful root and now put the law next to it and hope that that sinful root is going to change into something else. It doesn't work. All the law can do is reveal the sinful condition. Once it does that, it leaves us in a state condemned. Fearful, vulnerable, separated. That's what the law does in your life and in mine. That's where we're left. But the good news is this. Is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. God sent his son into the world. The reflection of the father. The one who kept the law perfectly. The one who never sinned. Was tempted in every way like we are. But never sinned. And then he bled out on a cross and died and absorbed the full weight and penalty of the wrath of God that the law of God brought upon sinful flesh. It was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And now he extends to you and I grace whereby he says, whosoever will, let him come to me. And I have paid the price in full. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by keeping the law. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his grace, he has saved us. It's not by our keeping the law. It's by our faith, our belief, our trust in what he has done. Am I saying, are you saying that, that... I don't have to keep the law to be saved? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Is that the law, keeping the law, cannot save you. So so I'm not saved by keeping the law. Right. I'm not saved by keeping the law. So, so, So what you're saying then, Nick, is that this study was a total waste of time. And it was long. Why did we sit here? Why? Listen, no. That's where you're wrong. Yes, you're right. You're not going to be saved by keeping the law. Right, you can't please God by keeping the law. Yeah, that's right. But was this Bible study a waste of time? No, this Bible study wasn't a waste of time. And here's why. Here's why. You know why? Egypt. Because you've been redeemed from being lost in your sins. And if you're mindful of that, then why would you any longer want to live in that? Not just Egypt, not just Egypt, but Baal Peor. 
Because every day your eyes see what happens when we give ourselves to sin. When we live in licentiousness. When we give in to seduction and do things that we know are contrary to God's word, we see the destruction that brings upon ourselves, upon our conscience, upon our churches, upon society, upon our world. We see it. And so this study is applicable. It's relevant for you and for me. Not just because of Beth Peor, but because of Og and Bashan. Because every one of us here has begun to see what God has done in our life, what he's willing to do, what he can do in a life that's submitted to him, that's obedient to his word. Not just because of that, but also because of Jericho. Because for every one of us, at every moment, there's more territory to take. There's an infinitely bountiful God that wants to impart into our lives his grace and his blessing in ever-enriching ways. And he says, walk with me, walk with me, walk with me. Listen to my words. Order your steps aright. It will go well with you. And I've given you the power of my spirit to do it, God says. And finally, because of Pisgah. Because there is a spring of refreshing. There is a life in the Lord. An experience of his love. And you do not want to step for one day outside of the boundary where God's blessing is its fullest in your life. And so for that reason, we don't say, I'm going to keep the law so I can please God. Good luck. You're going to be frustrated. But I do say, Father, your will be done. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I might know your truth and walk with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally tonight, I would pray that you heard my words. That the law tonight, as it was read, slew you. You realize that you're broken and fallen before God. And that you need Jesus Christ to come into your life and save you from your sins. It's a price that he paid, and it's an act that he's willing to do, a gift he's willing to impart to you. If you don't know Jesus personally, please talk to me before you leave. Let's pray. Let's secure that in your heart and in your mind. But for now, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you for the testimonies, the judgments, the statutes and the laws that you've laid out. For you've told us that these are the way of life. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would just speak to us and apply it in a personal way. I pray that you would give each one of us a clear vision of where we stand with you right now. For some of us, Lord, we've walked outside of the boundaries of where you can do for us what you want to do. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we might repent and be brought right back in. For some of us here tonight, we're frustrated because we've been trying so hard to please you through our effort and our work. Pray, Lord, that tonight your Holy Spirit would show us that we can't, but that Jesus did it for us. And that we stand in your favor by faith and not by works. And we ask you, Lord, that you would just take each one of us. You would refresh us and revive us, that you would uplift us, and that you would use us, use your word within our lives. And we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.